Hello, welcome back to the Edge of the Box podcast, a podcast by whoscored.com. I'm your host, Dan Bardell, joined by Ben from Who Scored. And this week, we've got Sam Peoples from United Peoples TV. And Sam, I almost feel uncomfortable having yeah. you on. Yeah. <laughs> it's a strange time to Manchester United. Do we have to talk about football? Can we not talk? Like, it started raining again. Everyone likes talking about the weather, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're not talking about football with you, really. We're talking about Manchester United, mate. So you'll probably... Uh, yeah, uh, fair enough, yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah. Bit of digs in we're going to start... We're going to start with game week two, though. And Ben's going to provide us with the Premier League team of the week. An excellent match week. An excellent game week in the Premier League, Ben. Who's made that eleven? Yep. So it's Dean Henderson in goal after his uh, solid display at West Ham. Great start. Yeah, yeah, very good start. <laughs> <laughs> Back four of Reese James, Christian Romero, Kalidou Koulibaly and Pascal Stroik. Uh, midfield of Neko Williams, Kevin De Bruyne, Pierre-Emil Hoiberg and Louis Diaz. And up front, Gabriel Jesus and Rodrigo. So, decent 11. There's some interesting ones in there. I thought Neko Williams was very good for Forrest. I was impressed with him and actually impressed with Forrest in general. The big game of the week and just gone, of course, was Chelsea v Tottenham. It was Battle of the Bridge 2, Sam. Now... Two teams that Manchester United have obviously fallen heavily behind. But, I mean, after a poor weekend for you, you must have enjoyed watching that game because it was a good game for the neutral. Yeah, it is. It's always a good game at Stamford Bridge. I, I, I back Spurs to win that 2-1. So I wasn't too far off with a 2 all draw. I think it's a result that any Spurs fan probably would have taken going into it. Uh, and it was... I was surprised by how good Chelsea were. I've, I've, I've given what's happened this summer with them basically chasing a ton of targets and not landing really who they wanted... I expected them to look a little bit shaky, but, you know, Koulibaly and Cucurella, it's a lot of money they spent on them, but it looks like some good signings. I think Tuchel's, maybe I'm just underestimating how stable Chelsea are, which just mm. infuriates me as a United fan, because I just want, I want to see, Ch- I think everybody collectively would enjoy just watching Chelsea drop a bit, but maybe not. I'm the same as you. I probably underestimated them a little bit going into the season, but Tuchel knows knows what he's doing, doesn't he? He's a fantastic manager. And like you say, he's just got them stable. I think because they had such a funny season last year where at a point it looked like they were going to be real total challenges and then they kind of just fell away and just stayed third for the entire season. They're a difficult team to judge. Ben, you're a Spurs fan. You must be absolutely delighted with the points in the end because Chelsea were well in control of that game. But that's what Conte gives you, doesn't he? He gives you that that spirit and that never-say-die attitude. And Harry Kane, who didn't do much in the game, came good for you in stoppage time. I would have taken the point, obviously, beforehand. But after that first half, definitely would have bitten your hand off for that. Um, The way it came about was obviously dramatic and thoroughly enjoyed watching the celebrations of the Tottenham fans, obviously. Um, but it wasn't until kind of he bought on Richarlison and moved to from a three four three to that four two four that kind of gave Spurs that leg back into the game. But then, it, then again, as soon as you know uh, Hoiberg scored, Chelsea then got straight back into it, and it was just Tottenham seemed all over the place um, for Reece James's goal. But then pandemonium in the sort of. 96th minute, which can't complain about. Yeah, there was lots of nuanced tactical decisions going on in that game, Sam, but I don't want to talk about that. What I want to know is, sure, obviously Conte and Tuchel had a fight at the end. I know, who's, the, who's the hardest Premier League manager? If they all have a Royal Rumble, who would win, do you think? I don't think I've actually got an answer for this. But Can we just bring Sean Dyche back into the Premier League just so he wins it? Because he, he would have won it, but he's not there now, which is why I think you know there's a there's a new champ, there's a new champ to be had. I reckon Jurgen Klopp would cheat his way to a Royal Rumble victory <laughs> yeah, by whipping out like some steel chairs and then just pretending he didn't touch him. Put me on the spot here. Uh, I'll probably say Patrick Vieira. Oh yeah, just <laughs> just, just, just Patrick, yeah, he does, he does, he, he's probably double hard. I reckon Patrick Vieira. <laughs> Fierce. He sees fierce. Away from that fun and game, Sam, we're going to have to get serious with you and talk about something that I'm sure you don't want to talk about, which is Manchester United, because it is Manchester United v Liverpool on Monday Night Football. And the first question I've got on my script here is, what do Manchester United do now? Now, that's a very vague question because there is an awful lot to do. But where do you even start? We're kind of in the middle of a vortex and it depends where you want to focus. Because we could talk about Ronaldo. We could talk about the lack of signings. We could talk about... Uh, the lack of structure. We could talk about the fact, uh, the anti-Glazer movement. As I said, there's so many different things. And it's so, the thing that's infuriating United fans the most is there was genuine positivity in that preseason. And it wasn't just for the... We're not talking about the fact that we beat Liverpool in a, pre, in, in a preseason game. Uh, what we saw from Ten Hag was the beginnings of his foundations and uh, the drop-off from that to the Premier League. Obviously, the, the things that have changed 
well, it's not pre-season anymore. So there's there's pressure. That, and it seems like these players now, I think what we've seen against it, and it's no offence to Brighton and Brentford, but we're effectively playing mid-table Premier League teams. And it's just going to get a lot harder than that. We've, we've, still, we've got Liverpool coming up in a few days. We should be able to compete against these teams. And we just didn't. We collapsed. We absolutely folded under the pressure. Uh, and there must be something psychologically that's deeply scarred inside these players to the point where, you know, Eric Ten Hag is a strong disciplinarian and all the plans just went out the window against Brighton. We couldn't string two passes together. We couldn't play out from the back. We were kicking it long. It was just, it was poor beyond belief. And then, I, I mean, I don't really want to talk about Brentford, but I know I've got to. And it was, it was just, it, it was a capitulation on the level of Watford away under Solskjaer. And that was his last game before he got sacked. It was just... He was worse than that game. 4-0 after 34 minutes is astounding. Uh, I mean, it's, I don't know if it was any worse, but it was just, it was on the same level. And I think what makes it worse, and it's what I keep saying to people, is the start of the season has felt like the 39th and the 40th games of last season rather than the first game and second games of something new. It's the exact same things we saw last year. The overwhelming majority of the same players. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think he's not going to change? Is it with the same players? I mean, they're trying to do different things. There's a couple of, there's a couple of new faces in there, but you know, essentially, it is the same team and Ten Hag must feel very, very let down with the transfer policy. I mean, it is. And it's not just a case of like backing your manager and supporting your manager isn't just chucking a blank check at him and just sign whoever you want. It's giving him the support network behind him so that he can just focus on what he needs to do. You can't in a modern day, you can't as a modern day manager succeed and do it all yourself like Fergie used to. And we're still stuck in that mindset as a football club. And we've just been st- stuck here while City and Liverpool have just built all around us and, and taking advantage of our downfall. United fans feel a bit dumbstruck at this point because the same problems exist, the same issues exist, and it's almost as if the real problem are the Glazers. And it's something that United fans, are like people, it, it becomes, it's very, very infuriating as a United fan when opposition fans just say, oh, yeah, well, you spent a billion pounds. It's not the Glazers. The Glazers aren't to blame, but it's it's the attitude and the mentality of a, of a set of owners we really don't care about winning. Like that's not that's not the be all and end all for them at the end of the season. Finishing inside the top four is 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 good enough for them, and you can't really do that anymore. Not in the Premier League. It's just it's way too competitive. It's ridiculous. Every year it gets better, like better and better. And then last year you get we got Haaland joining City, you got Nunes joining Liverpool, you got Wolves there signing Nunes from Sporting Lisbon, spending fifty million euros on a ridiculously good. Like just every team, Spurs, they've. Spurs have turned it on the head like Conte. I didn't think they were going to back Conte. And now they have. And that's kind of what we want the Glazers to do. But it's ob- it feels like it's coming towards the end with the Glazers. Like At this point, it's either they sell or they really invest heavily. Or because United, the value of United as, as an asset, as far as the Glazers are concerned, it's that sort of reached its um, peak. It's, not going to, it's going to start just losing money now. And they're going to start losing money unless they invest. And it doesn't really seem like they want to. Not this time, anyway. I get that. I kind of see where people are coming from. Oh, well, they've spent a billion pounds. Because on the face of it, you know, that's a hell of yeah. a lot of money. It is. You look at the players that have been bought, you know, it's it's all well and good providing, providing the money. But if you've got no strategy, you can easily waste a billion pounds. And that's I mean, pretty much exactly what's happened. It doesn't matter how much you spend. If you give somebody your wallet and they're drunk, they're not going to go and, like, pay your electricity bills before they go and buy a chocolate bar. Like, it's... They, they, Ed Woodward came in and he was an accountant. I don't need to tell you this. This is stuff that everyone's heard before, but it's effectively when you don't have the right football people in charge of footballing jobs at your club, you're not going to succeed. You're not going to succeed. And we're the greatest example of that. And it's, it's a tragedy as well, because we have spent a billion pounds. And if we had done that correctly over the last 10 years or so, my word, like, it would have been a completely different thing. But our, mm. our hit rate in the transfer market is... A bar. It's embarrassing. embarrassing. Did, did like you see the sky graphic on Monday Night Football of Gary I'll be Neville, honest, the, the green I don't know whether Jamie, Jamie Carragher and um, Gary Neville were just trying to rile people up, but that was a really odd list. Like there was some uh, one matter being a, down as a red. It's like you're just you're just trying to wind people up now, aren't you? Okay, interesting. Mm. But it's a frightening amount of players through the door, and let's be yeah. honest, very, very, very few people deserve to be in the green. I thought I thought that bit was probably fair, but then yeah, Fernandez is in there, and he's been anonymous for six to twelve months now. Really, not really involved in games yeah. at all, throwing his arms up in the air. And if we just talk about Manchester United on the pitch against Brentford, Sam, there's a couple of things that, that stand out to me. 
let's play out from the back. It, look, it's fine. Every manager wants to do that. They want they want to play out from the back, but it feels a bit overcomplicated getting your centre half taking goal kicks. I know, I know he's done it at Ajax, but I've never seen anyone in the Premier League do that. It's almost like they're just trying to be too clever for being too clever's sake. It's like De Gea doesn't want to give the ball to Maguire because he doesn't trust Maguire. Maguire, if he's on the ball, doesn't want to play it back to De Gea because he doesn't trust trust De Gea. You've got a new centre-back thrown in there who's just, just been completely bullied. Not not his fault, you know. I, I feel like he's been put in a difficult circumstance. For, for me, I think Manchester United will probably go to a back three at some point because I think it's the only way they're going to be able to accommodate him successfully. But you just, just watch them. And it's, it's, everything's too uh, overcomplicated. And then the other thing that is that my big takeaway from Manchester United is people want signings. And I said this on Sky last week and got absolutely hammered by Manchester United fans on Twitter. If you're an elite footballer, you take a look at Jaden Sancho and you would think, why am I going to go and put myself through that? Because he's a shadow of his, his former self. Yeah. He, he's anonymous almost in a Manchester United shirt. And we know what a good footballer he is. So if you're an elite level footballer, you are not going to want to come into that at the moment. Am I fair with those two things that I've picked up on? Ten Hag has a very specific way of playing. That's the whole reason we signed him as our manager, because we as a football club, we need a new identity. We need a style of play that we're going to get, we're going to stick with. And by the end of the season, it doesn't matter what 11 players are there, you're going to say, right, OK, that's Man United under Eric Ten Hag. I can see what they're doing. So we won't switch from playing out from the back with the ball. And we knew that when he became our manager. And therefore, you have to give him the players to allow him to implement that style of football. What you're talking about there is compromises, switching a formation to what? Accommodate for the players. No, that's not what United should be doing. I'd rather continue going through this pain until Ten Hag gets the players he needs and wants and they actually start playing like it. Or if we, do, if we, do, if we go the other way, and we start switching to a back three, we start accommodating for the players, it will be slowly Ten Hag creeping towards the door. It, it's it's going to take a long time. It's not going to be overnight. We saw quite a lot of it in pre-season, but like, De Gea can't play in this style of football. It's I love the guy, man. Like, what a sign he's been. Man United, we struggled to replace goalkeepers between like Schmeichel and then you got Bartes and you got to Van der Sar. We went from Van der Sar to David De Gea. It was dreamy. And he's been a stalwart for the club for so many years. But he cannot play the Ten Hag style of football. I think no, Harry Maguire can to a certain extent, but I, I fear more about the high line with him. But we His saw confidence is just on the floor, isn't oh, it? Everybody, finished. that's what I mean. Like There is some deep psychological scarring from, the, from, the, from United's failures that everyone seems to absorb. Like, as soon as the players went into Old Trafford against Brighton, nobody, was, nobody showed for the ball. Nobody went, like, come on, give it to me. And we don't really have that playmaker from deep, which is why we've been going after De Jong for so long. He doesn't have the players right now to implement his system. And it's, it's, it's you either back him, and what's the point in bringing him in if you're not going to back him? I mean, seriously, mm. what is the point? You may as well just stick with Ragnick. You may as well just leave United as this mid-table club and not give fans the hope that we're heading in the right direction with the right manager. And then just, yeah, just not giving him what he needs to play that style. Because it is hard. It's really hard and it's dangerous. But as Liverpool and City have shown, if you do it correctly, it makes you the, one of the best teams in, in, in Europe. Ben, I will bring you in shortly. Sorry, yeah, mate. There, I'm watching. No, no, no. <laughs> Obviously, you know, you're the, we've got you in because you're the, you're the Manchester United guy to, to talk about Manchester United. I'm, I'm fascinated by what's going on. But even something we spoke about at the start of the show, you like, you like raise your eyes when Dean Henderson was in the team of the week. Why have they not just kept Dean Henderson? Like uh, He's better Henderson. suited to that football than, than De Gea. Isn't if he'd have been told, I've no doubt, if you said to Dean Henderson, you're 100% going to be our number one this season, we, we want you to, to play that, that brand of football, we think you'll be good at it, probably would have stayed. So it's just yeah. like just shooting yourselves in the foot for no, for no reason. The Dean Henderson one, I think you could, there is a fair argument to have about that. The idea that Ten Hag could have said, you know what, you're clearly more suited to my style of football. Sorry, Dave going to put you as the number two. Dean Henderson came out with that interview that he did before not, not before he joined, or actually, no, just after he joined Forest. Yeah. Where he just basically pulled the shotgun out and just started spraying at United and just went like, it was criminal what happened to me after 12 months. I think Solskjaer was a man who probably broke a lot of promises with some players and sort of, because he, he said he was going to be his number one. But with Henderson, he, lit, he legitimately got COVID. Just yeah, last preseason, he got COVID. De Gea came back in. And he was wicked. It was like, I mean, what else are you supposed to do? Like, you can't blame COVID. So I think it was a little bit 
overzealous in what he was saying there. But honestly, man, it's there are like 15 different talking points that are all ridiculous with United at the moment. And it's just, it's, it, it, it hurts to just see the club still in such free fall when we've had such optimism about Eric Ten Hag coming in and we're just seeing, well, the beginning of this season. The weird thing is, we beat Liverpool, we go above them. It's odd, isn't it? Really odd. I mean, we won't. But I'm just saying, saying hypothetically. <laughs> I was going to say, are you okay? We've, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm driven, not okay. I'm really not driven okay. you mad in the podcast already, coming out with statements like that. Although Liverpool haven't had a great start, in all honesty, yeah. not been the side I expected them to be. We will come on to Liverpool. I'm going to ask you this question, Ben, because I don't think Sam will like it. <laughs> but obviously, you know, the last manager to come from Ajax into the Premier League was Frank De Boer, and I think he lasted three games for, for Crystal Palace. Do you think there's any risk at all that Ten Hag becomes another Frank De Boer? I mean, it is a risk when you get a manager from who's done so well for Ajax in the Eredivisie, and you can make, you know, if you're good enough for Ajax, it's fine because Ajax are arguably, with all due respect to PSV and Feyenoord, they are the biggest team in in the Netherlands. Um, they don't have the same kind of calibre of mid-table oppositions you would get in the Premier League. So when Ten Hag's Ajax dominate opponents, they would usually just stay in complete control. Whether he has the same short reign as De Boer, it is very questionable. But I feel like these next two weeks will be very important for Man United. If they don't back him, they don't sort out their midfield because their midfield is absolutely atrocious, then you're going to have to wonder whether Ten Hag will want to see out a huge, big enough rebuild when he doesn't probably doesn't feel as though he's getting the right backing. I mean, you look at the players mm. they want. They want Frankie de Jong, best dribble success rate in the league last season. Uh, Vitinha was linked, had the best dribble success rate in the Liga B win. And Adrian Rabio had the best dribble success rate in uh, Serie A last season. So he does want a specific type of midfielder to progress United up the pitch. At least that's the impression I get. But they're just... It's just this dawdling. I mean, we've got two weeks until the transfer window closes and you're looking at a Fred and Scott McTominay midfield partnership, which just isn't good enough for a team of Man United's calibre. No, I was going to talk about the midfield with you, Sam. So the the best way I can put it about McTominay and Fred is, I'm obviously a Villa fan and I don't think our central midfield is the strongest area in our team, but by a long stretch of the imagination, but by the way, it's probably actually our weakest. But I still would not want either of them in Villa's midfield. I wouldn't pick them over Villa's midfielders and there's probably 50-60% of supporters of Premier League teams that would, would, would feel exactly the same about their team. How are they still operating as Manchester United's main central midfielders? I honestly can't give you a logical answer to Manchester United's lack of signing of midfielders. It's 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 staggering. It's it's like we're actively going into a window and just crossing off the central midfield or defensive midfield. Lit at the, at, even when we signed Jadon Sancho. Even when we signed Cristiano Ronaldo, we when we re-signed Cristiano Ronaldo, we had signed Sancho and Varane. We finished second the season before, and we were told as fans there wasn't any money left to go and sign a defensive midfielder. And then we went and got Ronaldo for twenty million and, and paid him half a million a week. It was like, well, the money was obviously always there. It's just that the club decided not to do it, and it's just, it's odd. It's it's almost at this point parody how Manchester United just don't have a midfield. And then the whole, you've got it written down there as well, but the whole James Garner situation, it makes, I mean, it's it's like United are trying to shoot themselves in both feet at the same time. Like I'm not saying that James Garner is the, is the solution to our midfield. But he's the right type of midfielder, isn't he? Uh, yeah, he's the right type, but you just, at, at this moment in time, given the complete lack of quality and strength in depth in our midfield, you don't just let go of a 21-year-old Academy product who's come up with Forest, had a cracking season, has an ambition to play for the club and operates in a position of the pitch where you just need players. It's just the only logical reason you can suggest that. And it's not as if we're loaning him out. We're going to be sending him on a permanent deal. It's almost like the club is insinuating, right, OK, if you want a midfielder, we're going to have to sell a midfielder. And that links back to the Glazers and it links back to why this summer feels like the summer where the Glazers, I mean, they have spent a lot of money over the years. They really have. Uh, and then we've spent it incorrectly. And that's ultimately down to the poor structure that exists underneath them. But it just feels like we don't have the money this summer to go out and compete with those teams around us who are free spending. And that's just what you've got to do in the Premier League now to finish inside the top six. You have to spend big every year. And if you don't, 
you will get left behind. And that's where United are. We've just been left behind. Yeah, now let's look at Liverpool a bit. I mean, you probably would have been quite happy if you were only two points behind Liverpool after, after two games of the season. But surprisingly, they've, yeah. they've, they've drawn both their games so far. Ben, are you surprised by Liverpool's start? Bit of a bit of a stodgy start. Jamie Carragher last night after the game said that he thought Liverpool were excellent, particularly in the first half. And I'm, I'm going to be honest, I disagreed with that completely. I thought they were bang average, but it's been a strange start to the season for Liverpool. Yeah, um, I fully expect them to beat Fulham. I fully expect them to beat Palace. And they've dropped 10 points in 2022 and four of them have come in the opening two games of the season. They will. They miss Thiago in that midfield. He's that driving force from the right. He links up the midfield and the attack so well. I think, if anything, this highlights just how important Sadio Mane was to that attack line because he just gets around everywhere. He drags Marcus out of position and he's comfortable on the left, on the right, through the middle. And they've now completely switched it with Darwin Nunes. And he is a very different type of striker. And that's kind of made them, as you said, a bit stodgy, um, especially in attack. It's a bit one-dimensional last night, just chucking a lot of crosses into, into the box. Didn't really feel like they were getting much success from, from it. I mean, Darwin's not going to be there against Manchester United now after his moment of madness in, in the second half, Sam. But uh, same question to you. Are you surprised? Because they're just something that looks a bit off. There's been huge hyperbole over this Liverpool team, man. Like they're, they're, if you compare what City have done, and they're talking about Liverpool as one of the greatest teams, like they've they've done, they've been very very good, but they've ultimately just failed uh, at the crucial points at so many occasions. But they're a phenomenal team, and I hope it doesn't work out with Darwin Nunes. I hope that they do stay stodgy. They haven't got that fluid front three that works. But ultimately, I I think it's just going to be pre uh, early season. Uh, you know, stumbling, if you want to call it, that at some point, which will probably be against us, they'll find their rhythm and they'll come together and then they'll just they'll just carry on being Liverpool. But I'm going to enjoy them having a wobble because I need to distract myself from the Premier League table. You've, got to, you've literally got to cling on to small victories. At the I, moment, need, I need that, something. That's probably I mean, it's basically a relegation battle. I'm taking this relegation battle. Yeah, <laughs> Liverpool and Manchester United. I mean, I, I never thought in my life, I know we're only two games in, I never thought in my lifetime as a kid growing up with Manchester United with the best team in the country. Never thought I'd say Manchester United bottom of the league. That just, that's imp- I mean, that would have felt impossible. Of course, I mean, Arsenal last year is going to be the greatest parallel to draw because they lost their first three games of the season. Uh, and it's, it's actually a little bit strange. You can draw the parallel as well with um, Arteta and Aubameyang and how he dealt with that situation was actually, I think, one of the big catalysts for uh, a little bit of the beginning of the turnaround under, uh, under Arteta at Arsenal. You can see that right now, they look like a different team. They look like they've bought into the manager. Everyone's on the same wavelength. Mm. And I feel that's what United... I, mean, I, I love Ronaldo. I really, really do. But it's abundantly obvious now that at the football club, it would suit Manchester United better to not have Ronaldo there. And it would suit Ten Hag better to not have Ronaldo there. That's what suit I think. Ronaldo. Anyway. Suit Ronaldo as well, wouldn't it? Uh, well, it's suit Ronaldo. He, he's desperate to get out. He's given him like two transfer requests. And I'm no not, not United fan begrudges him for wanting to leave. It's it's the timing and the manner of how it's come out that sort of ended up becoming a bit of a sideshow in a circus we didn't need that's stung, I suppose. That's the best word to describe it. It's worth saying that we're recording this podcast on Tuesday afternoon. So, I mean, by the time this this comes out, by the time you're watching it, because this Liverpool Man U game is not till, not till Monday, anything yeah. could have happened with Manchester United. Anything could have happened with, with Ronaldo. Yeah, do you think, this is true. Do you think, Ben, that Liverpool... They're obviously, you know, bringing Nunes in, you know, he's probably going to go on and be excellent because that's what Liverpool do. Their transfer record's absolutely amazing over, over the last three, four seasons. He's that central midfield area that still doesn't feel quite right. I know they're probably waiting for Bellingham. They're probably going to get him in a year's time and he'll turn out to be a fantastic signing. But, you know, they've got injuries in, in, in that area at the moment. Players that consistently break down and, and pick up little niggles and pick up injuries. Something not quite right in that in that midfield area at the moment. Luckily, I mean, they're coming up against McTominay and Fred, so they'll probably be all right on Monday. But it does kind of feel like they need to do some kind of business there. Yeah, Raj touched upon it in the um, Liverpool pre-season episode. And he, he, he explained that the weakness was in central midfield. And it's hard to disagree with him. Um, he mentioned the injuries. Uh, Thiago's out again for another four or five weeks. Naby Keita still has his injury issues. Oxlade-Chamberlain, Curtis Jones, uh, Jordan Henderson picked up a knock ahead of uh, the game against... Palace. And to go into that uh, game against Palace in, on Monday night uh, with Harvey Elliott, James Milner and Fabinho, I mean, you've got two in there that are first-teamers, but to go in there with James Milner, you can't, that's not sustainable over the course of the season. And I mean, they, they did well to balance the injuries last season, 
but they still do feel one midfielder short. And if they go all out for Jude Bellingham between now and the end of August, then that midfield just elevates back up to another level. But whether they will or not, this doesn't seem the Liverpool way, particularly as they do seem as though they will get Bellingham in a year's time. They do just feel one midfielder short to really challenge City again for that title. Come on then, Sam. Is there any, any positivity you can muster up for, for this game? You're at home. I don't know whether that's a good thing or, or a bad thing, but I think you'd rather be playing at Old Trafford possibly than, than Anfield. Actually, I, mean, I yeah, don't yeah. even know if that would be me saying that. Right. is true at the moment. But no, can, you, can you come up with anything, any reason that Manchester United might do something? Look, uh, the reaction for from the Brentford game for Ten Hag was to effectively be like that PE teacher that you never liked because uh, he called everyone in on Sunday. Everyone was forced to run 13.8 kilometres, which was the dis- the total distance extra that Brentford ran as a team. He got everybody running in, doing uh, it, like these. It's like I don't know, like the first week of military training. Like if you, that's what it feels like. And it feels like these players, if there's going to be a response. It has to come in the Liverpool game because Ten Hag, he's, he can't be afforded time. These players won't be afforded time. And it, he's trying to instill uh, a disciplined culture into a club which has just had freeloaders for years and years and years with no real, you know, nobody's sort of like checking up on them. If it's going to happen, it's going to have to happen against Liverpool because if we go from that Brentford game and nine days later we put in the same sort of performance against Liverpool that we did there, against Brentford, then people are going to start asking questions about Ten Hag's ability as a coach. I can see it coming. And I don't want to have to do that. I don't no, no chance. I don't want to entertain any of that. I know he's a good coach. He's shown all of that against, uh, sorry, in his time at Ajax. But these players, my word. I mean, I don't know what you can say about these players. It hasn't already been said. It's properly embarrassing that a lot of them call themselves professional footballers. It almost seems like the, the, the least enjoyable day, part of their week, is that 90 minutes where they've actually got to play a game of football. So, oh, God, here we go again. Fine, I'll play. That's the attitude that it seems like so many of them have. And I, I, you can't get your head around that as a fan. It's, it's, it's gut-wrenching. It really is because they're just dragging us downwards and they've dragged managers under. And the way they started this season, they've, they've not exactly started brilliantly for Eric Ten Hag either. And he, des- he deserves that. It was a good pre-season. Everyone was on board. And now it's just, well... And then we've got Liverpool. I, I, I have no idea what to expect. The good thing is that Liverpool's season hasn't exactly been blistering. So that obviously... And if, I'm going to go to the game, right? I'm going to be there like an hour before convincing myself. And, you know, I tell you what, there's something about tonight. I can feel it. I'm going to convince myself that a 1-0 win is going to happen before we eventually get pumped 4-0. But we can't have that again. Last year, last year was 5-0 and 4-0 against Liverpool. And that, that was like the ultimate humiliation. Do you think fans would almost take a performance, and even if they don't get the result, let's say that you lose 2-1, but you put in a good performance. Yes. Are fans almost at the point where they would actually be grateful for that and accept that? Yes. Uh, it's n- Without question, I can say that 100% yes. Uh, it, and it's, it's not a case of accepting that. I'm not going in accepting the idea that we're going to lose to Liverpool. I'm not saying you'll be celebrating at the end, yeah, but you know, but you know you'd, be, you'd be satisfied. <laughs> it's fair on paper to say that Liverpool are a better team than Manchester United right now. So if we can come away from that game and say, look, we saw the Ten Hag football, we saw everybody try and committed. We saw until the 90th minute there was a bit of fight and a bit of bite in that team. Then you go, cool, we can build on that. But you can't take anything away from that Brentford game. You can't take anything really away from the Brighton game into the next game. And it's a 38-game season. Like, come on, guys. Like, be professional. Jeez, be professional. Seriously. It's, uh, it's, it's beyond belief at this point. Uh, but yeah, we've still got Liverpool to play. So, uh, I mean, it could get worse. Let's do predictions then. Ben, I'll come to you first. Predictions for this one? I mean, if Nunes was available, I probably would have gone for quite a heavy Liverpool win just because I feel like he's the better goal scorer that would probably bully Martinez more than Firmino would but even then May United and May United um, so I still think 3-0 Liverpool 3-0 Liverpool Sam I'm going 2-0 all. 2-0 all, Sam it's brave it's brave, it brave. you're never going to come on here and predict Manchester United to lose Liverpool whatever I mean, you I'm, think I'm, you're just not no. going to do it are you no I'm not you can't. but yeah two, even 2-0 even feels a little bit optimistic but um, I don't know it's optimistic there are, as I say, that Liverpool haven't exactly... Fulham and Crystal Palace dropping points in both of those games. It's like, OK, that's not the same Liverpool as last season. So that's that's something that Eric Ten Hag will take into this. And yeah, if we beat them, we go above them. That's more energy behind it. 
Like, come on, United, please. Please. I'm also, I'm basically begging at this point, please. You're not going to want to hear my prediction, but it's Manchester United nil, Liverpool 4. Oh, thank you very much, mate. I'm not, even, I'm not even doing that to be on the wind-up. That's just genuinely what I think the score score might be. I think they might suffer back-to-back 4 nils, which would be horrendous for Manchester United fans. But Liverpool have scored a lot of goals at Old Trafford over the last few years, and arguably Man United were in a better state the last the last couple of seasons when they've played Liverpool as well. So, yeah. Say your prayers, Sam. I think I think you're going to be praying all week that. leading up to the game. Let's look now at Newcastle against Manchester City. I, I quite like Newcastle, Ben. I, I quite, Eddie Howe's done a done a great job there so far. Quite an, an understated job in a lot of ways. I don't think Newcastle have operated in the way we perhaps expected them to. Buying relatively sensibly, not spending massive amount of money, but building a nice squad in the image of their manager, and no more so than Bruno Gamares in the, in, in the midfield, Ben. He's a sensational player, isn't he? And the reinvention of Joel Linton in the in the midfield as well. I mean, a player who couldn't do anything right for Newcastle. Now he's a player that the fans love. Runs all day. Really industrious in that in that midfield, and he's good for a goal actually in the central midfield position as well. Newcastle have just got a good setup. They they could pose a problem for Manchester City. I think now, but this will be a really tough game for City. Everyone kind of expected Newcastle to go out and just spend millions this summer, but they have invested well. Target they've made permanent. They bought Sven Botman, and then he's still not getting in the team ahead of Dan Byrne at the moment. And they just and Nick Pope as well is a very good signing um, between yeah. the sticks. But it is that midfield duo that I really like. Um, the, the reinvention of Joe Linton is probably the main success story of Eddie's how, Eddie Howe's time there because he just looks out of his out of his depth up front. But to reinvent him as a midfielder and then bring in Bruno Guimaraes in January. That's such a dynamic midfield that will give any team, you know, a very, very difficult 90 minutes because you've got two players who work hard off the ball. Um, if you get past one, the other one is right on you. And then when they do get the ball, they are able to bring it forward very easily. Um, I feel like if Newcastle are to get a result against Man City, it will be because those two control that midfield. That's going to be easier said than done given the um, midfield options at Guardiola's disposal. But you just feel like they protect that defence so well, they get the ball for, get the ball forward so well when they do win it back that that'll be their best way to pick up a result, you feel. Yeah, with Willock in there as well, Sam, it is an industrious midfield. It is a midfield that, that will work hard and get around City's midfielders, probably try and close down, close down space for the likes of De Bruyne and Gundogan. I think they're that, I think that's kind of the type of midfield that, that could unsettle Manchester City a little bit. I wish I could agree with you, but City are just uh, City are an, just an like an elite robot, uh, and I, I, they will give them a decent game. But ultimately, I think City will just come out on top. Uh, look, Bruno Guimaraes is. Uh, I'm just looking at it with jealous eyes. It was just it was a, it was a midfielder that was available. He goes, oh, good, great. Newcastle clearly have got an absolute gem there. And the Joe Linton story is proper like it's like a water boy story, like just just <laughs> no one expected it. It was it almost feels a bit Disney. Uh yes, Eddie Howe's been doing a good job there. I hope it all crumbles for Newcastle because they're effectively trying to become City. They're trying to become the new city. Uh but they've City have just got such a ruthless streak in them. Uh and I just can't see anything but I wouldn't say a comfortable win, but City will just have too much. But Harland. Eight touches in that game against Bournemouth, despite City absolutely dominating. You know, he did get an assist in there, didn't score, comes into my fantasy football team, and of course, it doesn't hit the back of the net. Any concerns with him, or is he just going to absolutely smash the Premier League? So, uh, I mean, both of those are the exact same. I have concerns because he will smash it in the Premier League. Now, I, again, if you're looking at, uh, he's basically a T1000. Like, he's, he's, I don't know how they've made him at that age, but he's just. He's going to set new precedents. Like teenagers, like I don't know. I've, I've said this to quite a few people. Like back in the day, like Rooney when he came in, he just like burst onto the scene as like a sixteen-year-old. Obviously, there's not that many sixteen-year-olds that break through, but it seems like eighteen-year-olds and nineteen. Drew Benningham's a good example. They just they're so good, so young now. Like they reach a level of football that normally you only would only expect like a, an established twenty-four, twenty-five-year-old player would be. And Harlan just looks ready for it any stage that he's walked on under pressure he's delivered and he's walked into a, a city team and the only thing they were missing was a striker and he is that striker and i just i don't see i don't see how it's gonna unless they get injuries this year this city team's just gonna fly away with it 
Yeah, Pep said after the game, Ben, that they've almost got to get used to having a striker because they've gone a couple of years w- without having one. Foden, 100% should have squared the ball to Haaland in, in, in the first half. I think it was where he, he play, should have played it, played it across and Haaland would have had a tap in. But when Manchester City do get used to having a striker, I mean, if they're playing at the moment when they're not used to it. It is going to be frightening when they are used to it. Yeah, um, it's interesting they've gone what the, the type of striker they have gone for because obviously when Harry Kane a lot last season, he mm. would have been a really good sort of blend for that number nine, number 10 role in that City squad. Haaland does drop deep, but he's his best work is in the box where he's absolutely ruthless. Um, it's just how he fares kind of against teams that do defend very deeply. Uh, they'll Obviously, then it frees up space for, you know, Jack Grealish, Phil Foden, Mares, their abundance of attacking riches. It still is work for Guardiola to do just to kind of accommodate a change in game that will bring out the best in Haaland. But once that clicks, then they're going to be unstoppable, you feel. Yeah, and they've already got that little gap over Liverpool. There's, there's literally, I say a little gap, four points. I mean, even four points at this stage, two games in. Sounds stupid, Sam. But there is so little margin for error with, with trying to chase it. To, you can't afford to be that far back already. Well, given what's happened between Liverpool and City over the last few years, four points is a substantial gap because it's been, um, what is it, two seasons? It was like 90, that Liverpool finished over 90 points and they still didn't win the bloody league because City still had more than them. Uh, look, again, it's uh, as a United fan, I just hope that I can sit here this season and hope there's a bit of progression because I'm sick and tired of watching Liverpool and City just blow everybody away in the league. But yeah, City... I don't think they're slowing down. If anything, they seem to be gathering pace under Gagliola. Yeah, got some incredible players coming through the academy as well that I think might be blooded this season. They've, they've got certainly room in the squad for the academy players coming through. So I think you'll see a couple of them come to fruition this season as well. Let's do our predictions then for this one. I'm going to start off and go Newcastle 1, Manchester City 2. Sam? I'm going to go... I'll give Newcastle a goal, but I think it'll be City 3. 3-1 three, to Manchester City. And Ben... I'm going to agree with you, Dan. 2-1 to Man City. 2-1 to Man City. So a tight game, potentially, at St. James's Park. Let's look now at Fulham v Brentford, a West London derby. Fulham haven't beaten Brentford at home since 1990, Sam. But they've made a decent start to life in the Premier League this time. I I thought they were... A lot of the reason Liverpool didn't win their first game was because I actually thought Fulham were really, really good and executed a game plan perfectly. I think they look quite handy so far. Yeah, I was expecting, well, we all were, right? Everyone was expecting Fulham to come up and then Fulham, well, you know, to go straight back down because that's what Fulham have done for years and years and years. But Mitrovic banging in a couple of goals, he's basically going to be the difference as to whether they go up or, or sorry, go down or stay up. But as a team against Liverpool, they played like Liverpool. They outpressed Liverpool. And it, again, it's, it's down to the basics. On paper, Fulham, they should have been absolutely swarmed and swamped by Liverpool. But they weren't because... They put the effort in. They they made sure they were first at that second ball, and it's those little subtle differences that allow control of a football game. I mean, you don't you're not just parked in your own box. Brentford they will play the exact same way against United. Brentford played a different style of football, played it a bit longer to try and expose a weakness, and it worked. Uh, but against Fulham and Brentford, I imagine it's actually going to be a pretty damn decent game. This one, I've, mm. I've no idea, I've no idea how to call it, but I think it'll be a good game for neutral. Yeah, you must also look at. I mean, even someone like João Paulinho, who I thought was excellent against Liverpool, and just think. Well, mind him in the Manchester United midfield. I mean, there are there are not many midfielders I look at now and go, you wouldn't improve my midfield. Yeah, he was he was my biggest takeaway from week one. I thought he was absolutely incredible for Fulham. Funnily enough, Ben, I mean, it will be a harder game for Brentford going to Fulham than it was playing Manchester United that last weekend. But they've got Dam's guarding. I think it looks like he's going to be an Ericsson kind of, kind of replacement. What have you made of that signing? I think he's a very good signing. Um, everyone kind of thought after the Euros last season that he was going to go on to get that really big summer move. He stood, he stepped up to the plate well for Denmark as they got to the semi-finals of the Euros. Then he just had this really freak injury where it was, I think, it was chronic arthritis. Um, so he started six games with Sampdoria last season and missed basically October through till April. Um, in terms of a direct replacement for Ericsson, I don't think he is like a very like-for-like player. Ericsson has that creativity, that vision to pry, pry open the defence, whereas Damsgaard is better with the ball at his feet, gets his head down and carries it past players. And his final ball does need a bit of refining, but I think in time he will be a very, very good signing and a very handy one for Thomas Frank. So Brentford, you look at their, their transfer policy, Sam, 
they buy players that suit what they want to do. Obviously, it's quite Scandinavian heavy at times, but yeah, at least they've got a policy and they've identified a policy that, that, that works for them. They've improved their team f- from last season. Do you think they've got a chance of, of top half, top 10 potentially? Uh, I mean, they'll probably be there or thereabouts, won't they? Uh, I, I think a successful season for Brentford is just going to be somewhere between, I don't know, 10th to 15th. I think they're going to be fine with that. I think as long as they... As long as they can effectively become, and I don't mean this in a horrible way, but like the new Stoke of the Premier League, where they just they, they're there and they can stay up for a good like three, four, five years. They're not really at threat of being relegated. They've got their new stadium, they've got a manager that they enjoy, they've got a style that seems to be working, and they can build on top of that. And yeah, Brentford played really well against United. Uh, Brentford, I think, do play. I remember playing in there last season as well. I like what they're doing. I like Thomas Frank. Well, actually, I don't like Thomas Frank. I think he's a bit... I remember last season, he, he was very sour, I think I, I think I would say, in, in his post-match reaction. But He lost to Manchester United and he couldn't believe it. Uh, I know, yeah. <laughs> who can blame him, right? But pff, no, Brentford, I think, will probably... I don't think they'll get as high as that. I can't remember what I, what I predicted for them in my Premier League predictions I now. I, so I can't say 13th. too much. Yeah, I think I had him about 13th in, in mind, but... A lot to like about them, as I said earlier on in the show. Let's finish then with predictions on this one. Ben, I'll come to you first. Fulham v Brentford. Uh, as Sam said, it should be a good game. Westland Derby, but I can't see Fulham getting the first one since 1990, so I think it'll be a two-all draw. I was going to go 2-2. Two, two. That's, what, that's, what, that's what I, I was going to go 2-2. Two, two. <laughs> I was genuinely going to go 2-2. Two, two. A full house of 2-2, two, two, so whatever you do, don't bet on 2-2 two, two this weekend because <laughs> if three of us think it, it's very unlikely to happen. We're going to finish the podcast with the Just a Minute section. It was missing last week and we got some complaints in the YouTube comments, so it's back for the entire season. Don't worry. Ben and myself are going to do it. The good news is that I didn't know I was doing this, so I'm literally going to be doing it on the fly for, for, for my games that I've been given, but we are going to start with Ben. It's Spurs against Wolves, Ben. Yeah, Tottenham looking to secure just their second home league win against Wolves following the visitors' Premier League return, having lost three of their last four in North London. Conte will serve a touchline ban after his red card at the full-time whistle at Chelsea on Sunday. Clement Longley missed the two-all draw through injury, but it should return, whereas Oliver Skip is likely to miss out. Yves Basuma and Ivan Perisic, Ivan Perisic both came off the bench in that one and are pushing to start. Wolves required a late Jose Sarr penalty to rescue a point against Fulham on Saturday. They have been poor since April and failed to win in nine league, league matches now with the last victory actually coming against Aston Villa on April 2nd. Uh, Raul Jimenez and Chiquinho ruled out, but their 0-0 draw, Fulham saw Gonzalo Grish make his debut and he's pushing to start. Adama Traore, who has actually been linked with the move to Spurs, is set to start on the bench, and they should have Mateus Nunes in time for that one. Uh, he's one to watch and completed more dribbles than any other player since the start of the 2021-22 Liga B win season. Oh, very good. Right, I'm doing Leicester v Southampton. Not a great one <laughs> for, for me to start with, but I'll have a go and I can tell you right away that this will not be one minute and I may look for some some talking from you two as well during it. So Leicester v Southampton. Uh, Southampton maybe picked up a little bit of momentum after their last game, coming back from two down. You kind of feel like Leicester at the moment have got no momentum at all and are probably worried about losing players because their players, their good players, are certainly linked with different clubs every single week. I don't know. I don't really know what to make of either side. I've got them both down as bum half sides, but I would feel like Leicester at home should probably come out with a win against Southampton. Southampton have gone not a funny route with their signings, but they've they've gone very heavy on getting in young, unproven players in and maybe hoping to build them up and sell them on for a profit. They've still got James Ward-Prowse in their midfield, though, so I think he's obviously going to be important because he's Southampton's best player by a mile. But Leicester, I think a good summer for them now, good transfer window for them is simply holding on to what they get. But I would expect them to come out on top against Southampton at home and get their first win of the season. Nah, I don't think so. (laughs) You don't think so? Well, you know, I was talking on the fly. Maybe I don't believe some of the stuff I was saying. I genuinely think Leicester are going to be in a relegation battle this this season. I think this is... I think this is a season where the sort of like the Brendan Rodgers, I wouldn't say the bubble burst, but it's just like what was working for them. You're right there, like Fafana and everybody they're holding on to, the people they've lost. Tielemans is a bit of a weird situation. Like no one's really gone in for him. I don't really understand that. Like he's a good player, available for a to go into, but it would be a very sideways move for him in some respects. No, dream of him at Villa. I I can't imagine this is going to be first on match of the day, this game. No, no, but. 
I think Leicester. I think they'll have too much for Southampton. I think Southampton. Southampton's a funny side. I can't work them out under House and Hurtle. He's been there for so long now, but they're now just gone a completely different transfer strategy under mm. him. But they did get that that two goal two goal um, recovery last week, so it might give them some momentum, as I said at the start. Right, Ben, as as luck would have it, you get to do Palace v Villa instead of me, so off you go. Yeah, Crystal Palace would have taken a point ahead of Monday's trip to Liverpool, but will have also been disappointed not to hide up for all three at Anfield. The Eagles have a decent home record against Villa, winning five of the last seven home league meetings with the Villains. Uh, Patrick Vieira bulked out the defence in order to, to counter the threat of Liverpool, but should revert back to a more familiar 4-3-3. Michael Elise is fit enough to make the bench on Merseyside, but whether he dislodges Wolf, Saha or Eberechieze remains to be seen. Nathan Ferguson, Jack Butland, James McCarthy and James Tompkins do miss out. Uh, Aston Villa finally got their campaign up and running with a 2-1 win over Everton on Saturday, but the victory came at cost as summer rival Diego Carlos ruptured his Achilles tendon and he may not play again this season, which is a huge blow for Villa. Esri Concer and Callum Chambers are battling to start alongside Tyron Mings at Selhurst Park and Hart to defence. Emmy Buendia impressed off the bench to score what proved to be the winning goal against Everton and he may start at Coutinho's expense behind Ollie Watkins and Danny Innes after the Brazilian suffered from cramp. Cash also suffered from cramp in that one, but should be fine to start. Uh, Villa weren't wholly convincing against Everton at the weekend, and on home turf, you'd probably back Palace to secure all the spoils here. Oh, would you? Okay, then. Yeah. Diego, <laughs> yeah, Diego Carlos, a huge loss for Villa. You know, he'd never had a bad injury in his career, just a couple of niggles in his entire career. He rocks mm. at the Villa Park, does his Achilles, probably out for the season. Absolutely vintage. I'm going to do Everton v Forest now. So Everton looked pretty impotent up top against Villa at the weekend. They looked a lot better when Anana came on in midfield. So I would expect him to start against Nottingham Forest. Everton now got three at the back with Connor Cody and Tarkovsky. And although I think Cody is a good signing for Everton, I do kind of feel like that shifted Tarkovsky to have to play left of a back three, which I'm not sure entirely suits him. And Watkins had some joy up against him at the weekend. Forest were very impressive against West Ham, although their goal did lead a completely charmed life. West Ham hit the woodwork a couple of times. And, of course, Declan Rice missed a penalty. By the time we come to this game, because we've recorded this podcast on a Tuesday, Forrest may well have signed about 100 more players. Emmanuel Dennis, who didn't feature at the weekend, will be available to play against Everton, I believe. And it'll be interesting to see if he comes into that front line that performed very well against West Ham. Everton, I would expect to be in a relegation battle still. I still think there's a lot of work to do there. Forest, I'd be quite intrigued to say that I don't think they will be in a relegation battle from what I've seen of them so far. I think Steve Cooper is an absolute magician. But yeah, I reckon that'll be a decent game at the weekend. I've, I've, I don't like Everton are just... Well, it must suck to be an Everton fan. Like the amount of money they spent over the last, what, five, six, seven years and then to be in the position they are in now. They've obviously got Bramley... Bramley is it Bramley Dock? A new stadium being built? Yeah. But, brr, I mean, Anthony Gordon, I don't know what Chelsea are doing, going after, what is it, 45 Strange. million? 45 mm. million. Like, what are you doing, Chelsea? Stop it. Strange, isn't it? They're almost Manchester United light, Everton, <laughs> in that they've done a lot of bad business and are a lot lower than you would expect them to be. Uh, mm. few parallels, I would I would say, between the two of them. Could, could both be involved in a relegation battle, for all we know. Uh, less of that, less of that. Ben, you're going to look at Bournemouth v Arsenal now. Bournemouth were always going to be up against it against Manchester City on Saturday, and they were dominated from the first to the last. They do need to make home advantage count if they are to consolidate a Premier League spot this season. Scott Parker remains without new arrivals Ryan Fredericks and Joe Rothwell, while David Brooks continues to build up his fitness. Dominic Solanke and Jordan Zamora both need assessing having missed the defeat at City, while new signing Marcos Senesi came off the bench in the loss at City and is pushing to start. Emil Smith-Rowe featured from the bench in Arsenal's 4-2 win over Leicester, which leaves just Fabio Vieira as Mikel Arteta's only main injury concern at the time of recording. William Saliba should keep his place in defence despite his own goal in the aforementioned victory, typically coming after he was bigged up by myself last week. Gabriel Jesus had a direct hand in all four goals against the Foxes, so he'll be full of confidence for this one after making the Premier League team of the week. Arsenal have won two of their last three trips to Bournemouth, both of which were by two on scoreline, and a repeat may be on the cards for this one. Very good. Leeds v Chelsea for me. And I feel like this used to be a bit of a grudge match back in the day, Leeds v Chelsea, when Leeds were pushing towards the top six. Probably not so much of a grudge match these days. I've got a mate who's a Leeds fan, and he's telling me he's disappointed by their start. Obviously, they chucked away that two-goal lead at the weekend, but, you know, four points and unbeaten from two games. There's a lot of teams in the Premier League that would snap your hands off for that. And I actually do think Leeds will end up being OK, despite what looks like a bit of a strange transfer policy in some ways, kind of trying to be Red Bull Leeds. But Chelsea will be 
a hard, hard game. Chelsea were very good against Spurs at the, at the weekend at Stamford Bridge, as we saw, and I would fully expect them to go to Ellen Road and be just as good. Chelsea still obviously looking to do a lot of transfer business. They may well have a couple of players in before they play Leeds. The only concern with Chelsea is goals because they don't have that out-and-out goal scorer. Bro, you came on again in the last game, but I don't think you'll see him from the start. So it will be up for Havertz and Sterling potentially to get the goals for Chelsea. Mason Mount was buzzing around in that Spurs game and was very good as well. He hasn't scored yet this season. But yeah, Chelsea need goals really until they get a striker. I don't think they're going to get enough goals to be competing for the title, but I would expect them to go to Leeds and win. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yep. You're going to finish with West Ham v Brighton, Ben. West Ham are yet to score a Premier League goal this season. Declan Rice saw his penalty saved by Dean Henderson on Sundays. The Hammers fell to a 1-0 defeat at the City ground. And the defeat now means that West Ham have won only one of their last nine league matches, and that was a 4-0 win at already relegated Norwich. Lucas Fabianski was fit enough to return to the starting eleven at Forest, while Craig Dawson and Angelo Agbona, who both missed the defeat in Nottingham, will hope to recover in time for feature. New additions, Jean-Lucas Scamacca and Maxwell Corne, both featured off the bench and hope to make their full debut against Brighton. But West Ham do also have a Europa Conference League qualifier against Viable on Thursday, which may impact David Moyes' selection here. Brighton have been fortunate with injuries to kick off their campaign, with Jacob Murder, the only absent confirmed absentee, he is out until next year. Graham Potter stuck with the same side that beat Manchester United for the welcome of Newcastle, as Brighton claimed all four points from the opening two league matches. They come to this one and beaten seven in the league with the last defeat coming at Manchester City back in April. And since then, they have beaten Arsenal, Tottenham and Manchester United on the road. And they did beat West Ham through on, on the last day of last season. The last four league meetings between West Ham and Brighton, the capital have ended in a draw. But given West Ham's subpar form, Brighton may edge this one. Very good. That does us for the Just a Minute section. I think, I tell you what, intense. The Just a Minute section. Very intense. A lot of information. Yeah. <laughs> I was under extra pressure because I didn't have anything in front of me about it, but I, I don't envy you guys who've had to do that every week through, through, the, through the years on the Who's Called podcast. I didn't like that at all. And hopefully I'll never have to do it again. <laughs> Sam, I was going to say, hopefully you've enjoyed being on the podcast, but probably you haven't. But we do thank you very much for coming on and talking Manchester United with us. And I do wish you all the best on Monday, but I would seriously get praying. Uh, just just bring me on a podcast at some point after we've won a game, and that'll be good. Right? Just, right, we'll book you in nice. after Christmas. After yeah, Christmas yeah, exactly. At some point, we'll, yeah, we'll try and get you back on the edge box. Yeah, <laughs> Ben, thanks for joining me as well, representing Who Scored. Thank you very much. Please don't forget to subscribe to the channel with your post notifications on if you haven't done so already. We will be back next week, I think, on Thursday as normal. I think I've heard a vicious room that Jonathan Wilson may be returning in the near future. So, yeah, get your eyes peeled if you get your notifications on. You'll know when the podcasts are coming. Enjoy all the football at the weekend, even you Manchester United fans. Only one thing left to say, stay safe. Stay safe indeed. It might be difficult at the bottom of the league to stay safe. but Well, it's all right. It's, it's technically not at the weekend, so uh, it's going to be different for me. A long weekend for you, but it's almost worse playing on the Monday as well.